Welcome to the Weekly Standard Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Graham. Many of us were taken aback by the revisionist reporting from the New York Times on Benghazi. Nobody knows that story better than Tom Jocelyn with the uh, Foundation for the Defense of Democracies, a senior fellow there. Uh, Tom, uh, welcome to the podcast. And what was your reaction to what you saw in the New York Times this weekend? Well, actually, it's sort of, uh, you know, it was totally unsurprising. It's sort of this been a big push all along to say that al-Qaeda or al-Qaeda-linked actors had nothing to do with Benghazi. Um, this is just really the latest version of that story. Uh, but I don't understand because I could have sworn we've had months of reporting that made the link again and again between al-Qaeda, al-Qaeda-backed actors, uh, friends of al-Qaeda. I, mean, I thought we were getting a pretty clear vision of what happened here, which was a long-time, well-planned attack on the uh, U.S. consulate in Benghazi. Well, I think that's right. I think, you know, like if you're a nerd like myself who looks at the specific actors involved, you can find al-Qaeda links, you know, throughout the network that committed this attack in Benghazi. Um, one of the key actors I focused on is this guy named Muhammad Jamal. He's an Egyptian who was trained by al-Qaeda in the late 1980s and has been loyal to the current head of al-Qaeda, Ayman al-Zawahiri, since the 1990s. He's clearly within al-Qaeda's sphere of influence. He's clearly part of the al-Qaeda network. And some of his trainees took part in the attack in Benghazi. In fact, New York Times reported on this itself. Um, and yet when uh, David Kirkpatrick went back to write his revisionist account of the Benghazi attack, Jamal is entirely left out of the story. And I think that the Jamal angle sort of disproves his entire thesis for what happened. He's been arguing all along that it's just these local actors who committed this attack has nothing to do with the broader global jihad or al-Qaeda. I think the Jamal angle of the story disproves that. Uh, but he does point to this local militia guy who he puts a lot of credence in, essentially, if I understand the, uh, the reporting correctly, kind of the motivating, the motiva- key motivator behind the attack. Uh, are you saying that, that doesn't, he got that part of the story wrong? Well, I think it's more complicated than he reports. He provides a particular uh, version of events, a particular view of Ansar al-Shri and other actors uh, inside Libya. I have, I disagree with that view. I think there are mounds of evidence that show that he's wrong um, and that he's just not recognizing all that other evidence. But, you know, he focuses on one guy. In his, you know, 7,000-plus word piece, he only identifies one suspect in that whole account when we know that dozens of attackers took part in this whole thing. And the one suspect he identifies, uh, Ahmed Katala, he identifies as this local extremist, somebody who's unconnected to the um, sort of broader al-Qaeda network. But I think if you look at that a little more carefully, you see that that version is not really accurate. And in fact, Katala openly praises al-Qaeda and its ideology. That should be your first hint that maybe he's not just a strictly local actor. But also, you know, other accounts, including something, uh, an account by the Washington Post in recent weeks, described him as having ties to al-Qaeda described Qatar as, in fact, having ties to al-Qaeda operatives. So, you know, I think there's other evidence out there that describes Ansar al-Sharia, which Qatala is uh, a part of, or at least a leader of in some sense, um, and other related groups that Kirkpatrick wrote up as definitively being part of the al-Qaeda-linked global jihad. Uh, tell us the story that we, that the facts seem to back up about what actually happened on September 11th. Uh, that day in uh, in Benghazi versus what it is the New York Times or this writer at least who has a new book coming out wants us to believe. Well, Kirkpatrick is trying to revive the idea that the video was the proximate cause or one of the main causes of the attack. Um, however, even that version of events is just highly skewed. I mean, when you actually look at what happened on September 11th earlier in the day in Egypt, it's very clear that Al Qaeda actors, including Mohammed Al Zawahiri, this is the brother of Al Qaeda's number one honcho, Al-Qaeda as Amir, helped instigate the protest in Cairo. What they did was they used the video as a pretext for that protest to gin up sort of more support for what they were doing. 
so the, the video was never strictly about the video. The protests, I mean, were never strictly about the video. The protests always had this heavy al-Qaeda influence in them. Um, this is quite obvious for a lot of reasons. But you, right now what you're seeing from Kirkpatrick and others is this attempt to say that the video in and of itself is somehow a proximate cause for what happened in Benghazi, when really there's a whole chain of events that shows that that, that uh, version is not right. You know, you had these uh, repeated attacks on other facilities in Benghazi and in Libya, and then you had the... Uh, you know, internet warnings or, you know, uh, chatter that suggested that attack was on its way. How could you have a pre-planned attack before anyone even knew about the video? Well, I think that's right. I mean, there's, there's some disagreements within the intelligence community and the sources I've talked to about how well in advance it was pre-planned. Um, so I'm not really even sure how far in advance it was pre-planned, okay. but certainly it was more pre-planned than I think uh, Kirkpatrick lets on. But the bottom line is, when you, when you look at what happened here, remember the, the original version of the story was there was this protest in Benghazi that spun out of control, and the protest was about the video. It's quite clear there never was any protest. In fact, the State Department quickly walked back from that in the weeks following Benghazi. Um, so right now they're trying to say that somehow this video was the a motivator in the, in the minds of the terrorists who actually committed the attack. And what I've said all along is that there's a difference between a pretext and a motivation. Right. If you're an al-Qaeda-linked terrorist, you're an extremist like that. You don't really need a video to justify your terrorism. That can just be a pretext. So it's kind of like uh, saying we were going to rob the bank. We were waiting for the de- weather to be bad to slow the cops down. Then you rob the bank and they blame the weather. Yeah, I mean, it, basically, if you look back at al-Qaeda's history, you'll realize they, they uh, lard their propaganda with all sorts of reasons for the, committing their acts of terrorism. Mm-hmm. Um, ultimately, however, their motivations are ideological. A lot of what they say in their propaganda is just, are just pretexts, trying to blame America for their attacks against America. Basically, they're trying to say, we have to attack you because of what you've done. And sort of, it's sort of a blame America first approach to uh, 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 propaganda. Uh, you know, I've seen media reports that, uh, uh, you know, after you know, months, obviously, after Benghazi, after all the clouds covered it and all the bizarre stories about videos, et cetera, that said that within 24 hours, not only were intelligence sources telling the Obama administration that it wasn't a uh, spontaneous attack, it was, in fact, a you know, terror-linked attack, but they were naming specific names about the people they thought were involved. Were those media reports wrong? Has the New York Times corrected the record? You know, I've heard for a long time now that, in fact, people in the military, people in the intelligence community um, identified some of the key actors uh, pretty early on, and then, in fact, that they could have gone in and done something to try and take them out or, or hold them accountable. And that because this is being treated as sort of a law enforcement approach first, that, that they've been held up from doing so. Um, I, I think that this was an act of war. I think it was an act of war by the Al-Qaeda network, if you properly define that and understand it, which I don't think Kirkpatrick does and that basically that needs to be treated as an act of war and responded to in kind, not as a law enforcement matter. Uh, so um, the right response would have been and would be today what? Well, I think there were early on, I mean, I don't know what the state of the intelligence is today, but early on I was told that there were camps and facilities that were comp- uh, totally uh, controlled by the people who committed this attack or known to be affiliated with the people who, were, who committed this attack. Those facilities certainly would be something that would be um, you know, within our right to target I think there are other, other parts of the story. There are other operatives like Katal, who was mentioned in Kirkpatrick's account, who could have been, may have been able to be detained at some point in Libya, just like we did with a senior al-Qaeda operative in early October. So there, there are a variety of things that, that could have been done and a variety of things that can be done. And it's basically what the specific intelligence is about the whereabouts of the actors involved. Um, what is the current status, though, of our response to Libya? Are, is there an ongoing anything, or is it just going to be watching the media roll out their various versions of the story while the United States does nothing? 
think there's been little to no response from the U.S. overall. You know, none of the key actors are in American custody. Um, I think Jamal is in Egyptian custody. He's been questioned by Egyptians. It's not clear to me how much American authorities have had access to him at this point. Now, again, this is a guy whose trainees took directly part in the assault. Right. Um, you know, I don't see why he couldn't even be brought to the U.S. Even in the law enforcement paradigm, you know, I, I think if you have uh, enough evidence on these guys to prosecute them, then, then fine, at least do that. Um, but that's not even being done. So right now, I think the response to Benghazi has been uh, by the U.S. has been slim to none. Um, and uh, now that this video story has been revived and been put out into the uh, media conversation, do you see this as a distraction or is it another opportunity for people who have uh, a clearer picture to step up and make their case so that more Americans can understand what truly happened uh, a year ago, September? Well, you know, I'm going to use it to basically call for further declassification of what we know about the attackers. This is something the Weekly Standard we've written about quite a bit when it comes to Bin Laden's documents that were captured in Abbottabad, other files captured in war theaters. We've consistently called for the declassification of a lot of the evidence in the U.S. government's hands. I don't see why that uh, couldn't be the case with um, some of the evidence surrounding Benghazi, including the sealed indictments against the attackers, for example, which the president has gone on the record and acknowledged. Um, you know, we should know who exactly the U.S. government thinks was responsible for this attack and also what ties, if any, they have to the al-Qaeda network, which I think you'll find uh, many more ties to al-Qaeda, in fact. Tom Jocelyn with the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies. Thanks so much for your time. We really appreciate it. Thanks, Michael. This has been the Weekly Standard podcast. Please be sure to check weeklystandard.com regularly for podcast updates. I'm your host, Michael Graham.